the church, a very warm welcome uh, to you indeed. Well, what is all that about? What are all those names all about? Hopefully we're going to discover some of that as we journey through uh, together. But before we do that, would you all please stand? Thank you, Jack, for knowing exactly what that meant. Others were quite confused at that instruction. Okay, now you've probably been aware at the start of that reading in in Joshua chapter 6, there was the coming down of the walls. Just as there was the coming down of the walls, just prior to that, there was on that seventh day the trumpets that, that sounded. And at the trumpet sound, all of God's people then had to shout. So that we're all in sync, it's going to be a punching the air and a yes! Are you with me? You are. Okay, this is what we're going to do. Are you ready at the trumpet sound? Yes! Well, this side, that's pretty good. Pretty good. That's really good. Okay, you can all sit down. You can all sit down. Not on this side. That was, there was definitely a bit of a, a lowering of the hush over there. So well done over there. That was fantastic. Exactly the same. The trumpet sang. Okay, you need to do a little bit better on this side. Yes! From the back. That was tremendous. Very good. All those people apart from the first two rows, if you can now sit down, please. Well done. First two rows. Okay. Now that wasn't that good. Let's try again. Okay? Yes! Well, I, I heard the women's voices. <laughs> so, ladies, if you could actually sit down, please. Okay, and then there were two. Matching shirts as well. Okay, right. Alicante of three. Yes! Well, Chris, you can sit down. Right? <laughs> so, have we got a problem here? <laughs> Tom, it's just you, on your own now. <laughs> now, of course, we're all laughing here, apart from Tom, who was in on this. So don't feel sorry, Tom. You sit down, Tom. You sit down. I just wanted us to capture something of what maybe had gone on in that reading of it being scaled down and scaled down. Still in the camp. Something wrong. Hope it's not us. Hope it's not our clan. Hope it's not our family. And then it boils down to there being a one. Thank you, Tom, for being such a good sport. For the rest of you, just be grateful that I didn't speak to you before. Pride comes before a fall. We've heard that phrase, uh, haven't we? That's the first thing that maybe comes uh, comes up as we look at this passage together. If you've got a Bible, then two, please uh, turn with me to chapter 7 of Joshua. God's people had known great victory. They were now in the promised land. Everything is theirs. But there is a but. The only but was that they did not take the devoted things. Chapter 6, verse 18. The gold, the bronze, the silver, all of that stuff that belonged in the temple of the Lord. As I read this, it was a, a very similar pattern, maybe, that right the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, and verses 15 to 17, we read there in the creation account, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, 
you will surely die. In both of those accounts, separated by history and years, 99% is yours, is what God says. But you cross a line, and there's going to be trouble. And the context here for God's people, you cross a line and there's going to be trouble, not just for the individual, but indeed upon the whole nation. That was what God said way back in, in chapter 6 of Joshua. And of course, look what occurred. There's that ignoring of God's word, and the line is crossed, and the nation is then punished as a result. Now, some of you that are into cricket would have probably been watching the Ashes series uh, recently. We won't talk too much about that because England didn't win, basically. <laughs> but you may well remember if you're into cricket or if you're into picking up on global headlines in the sporting arena, that a couple of years ago, there was what was known as the ball tampering situation where Steve Smith and David Warner, two of the best Australian cricketers, were caught doing what they shouldn't have done, with having a piece of sandpaper in their pocket to then sort of make a difference to the ball so that the ball would, would move them out in a particular situation. But they were caught. It was picked up on TV. And before you know it, these people who have been on the back pages for positive reasons were all of a sudden on the front pages for bad reasons. Not only did Steve Smith lose the captaincy, but he and David Warner were dropped from the Australian side. They were dropped, they were fined, they were banned for two years. It was a shame knowing how Steve Smith played, that it wasn't banned for three years, we have to say. We may well have done a little bit better uh, in the ashes. All they had to do was heed by the rules of the game. And yet, for a moment's blip and stupidity, that impacted the whole cricketing world. And Australia themselves suffered a huge disgrace. All that God's people had to do here was heed the warning, but temptation is strong. When God speaks to us about a warning, we need to heed the warning, heed the warning, or to pay the price. And that's what God's people had to do here. What was the consequence here? The Israelite army had suffered this embarrassingly crushing, yet totally unexpected defeat. Joshua had done what he'd done before. He sent spies out to check out the opposition. They came back and said, in essence, this is going to be a complete piece of cake. No need to send loads of people here, just maybe two or thousand. That will be it. God's word says, for only a few men are there. That was what they said. Well, Joshua erred on the side of caution. He sent across 3,000, but he completely underestimated the number or the power of the opposition or both. Pride comes before a fall. We are often at our most vulnerable after some form of, of success or significant spiritual milestone. Uh, you may well have experienced that yourself if you've been away on a conference or at spring harvest or you've known someone else who's come to faith and everything's absolutely fantastic and then they think it's always going to be a mountaintop experience and then bang over and over and over despite warning people who have gone through that thing of just having become a Christian just having got baptised just having become a member of the church whatever it may well be and said look on Monday morning, don't be surprised if, and of course, quite quickly, things go wrong and people think, well, 
I thought everything was going to be okay now. Mm. No. Spiritual battle was only just beginning. And of course, the same is true here. God's people have known this incredible victory. All the surrounding nations would have been in awe and petrified of the Israelites. I don't know why they were planning on going to the, the, uh, the region of I anyway. We haven't really got anything there to suggest that that was a good idea, but not a God idea. Did God tell them to go, or was it just that they felt right doing it? Because they, they just wanted to do it. They wanted even more than God had already uh, given over to them. We've related Hangbury to, in a, in a sense, being our own form of promised land, being elsewhere way back, and now God has provided this building, this place, this, this people group, this community for us to be salt and light in. It's very easy for ourselves to just think, now that we're here, thinking, wow, look at us in our building, let's just have a good idea, we'll run with that, and I'm sure because of our building and because of who we are, everything's going to go fine. Discerning between good ideas and God ideas is very important for us. We need to be asking, is this a God thing? Is this a sense of God's direction that he's wanting for me as an individual or for ourselves as a people group? Not every opportunity that comes our way is going to be a God-given opportunity just because it sounds like a good idea. Do pray for us as a leadership team. We pray through that whole host of sifting through the different opportunities that come our way. Often it's easier to respond with a yes, thinking, oh, this is great, without maybe taking time out to discern whether or not that might actually be from God. Joshua was a man of vision, but he clearly not thought through the issues relating to what specifically they were trying to achieve in this battle against I. They went on ahead with very little thought, very little consideration. With every ministry or every opportunity for ourselves here, we need to be asking, what is it that we are trying to achieve? It's not just to have a full building. It's not just to have people using this space. We need to be asking that question. Then we peel back the layers and need to go back to what we are about as a church. And then it's off the back of that that we need to reflect what we then do. Pride indeed comes before a fall, and boy did they realise that then. Next thing I think we discover is this, and this is a warning to me, to everybody else, when things go wrong, which inevitably they're going to from time to time, turn to God. When things go wrong, turn to God. Joshua, if you see his uh, response, immediately identified their defeat with sin. Whether or not he was aware of the people's compromising at this stage, we don't really know. It's certainly easier, isn't it, to turn a blind eye uh, to certain things and assume that all's okay. But Joshua certainly seemed to know and appreciate that they failed their God in some way. That things would be different now and that they would be viewed differently as a nation. He's indeed tempted completely to give up. That's why he humbled himself before God by way of response. Three things indicate his contriteness and his heavy heart. He tore his clothes. He fell face down to the ground and he remained there in an attitude of prayer until evening. That is not an easy thing to do. For some, to pray for five minutes, okay. Pray for an hour. Maybe you're one of those uh, people that could do that. What about two hours? What about three? What about six? What about that length of time increasing but face 
down. I don't think that's a very easy thing to do at all. That is serious prayer. That is serious business that an individual is seeking to work through with God, isn't it? I wonder how often we are that ripped apart. Rarely would be my honest answer. Rarely would be my answer as I look at the Christian church in the UK. Rarely are we that desperate or are we feeling that bad about who we are in our own situation that we're going to fall face down before our God. I think most of us feel we're doing okay, we're pretty okay, we're upright, thank you very much. All prayer meeting or I need to pray or... But what about the example that's modelled here? The other leaders, chapter 7, verse 6, did the same. Their entire leadership team were involved in that. They also sprinkled dust on their head and in so doing modelled repentance and confession. Corporate brokenness before God is even more rare than individual repentance and contriteness before God. In the sense of corporate repentance, I have known of that once in my 36 years as a Christian. Only once. It happened when I was at Bible college, when something happened that no one expected. We're going to talk about it later on this evening. We used to have a Thursday morning chapel. 45 minutes. That morning, something happened where there was huge confession and repentance on a major scale. Lectures were cancelled. We were there over four hours. I'll tell you more later on this evening. I've never known an experience like it. Corporate repentance. What about these people here? Didn't they have a nation to run? Didn't they already have a schedule for the day? Listen, nothing mattered more to Joshua and those leaders than getting right with God and seeking him afresh. Because they'd blown out and they'd known that. When they looked back to see what God had said and looked then at the, uh, the, the, uh, what had followed, they knew that they needed to seek God afresh. We've occasionally over the years had what we've called like a half night of prayer. Or we've suggested members considering fasting. Both those two things are good things to do from time to time. Uh, we've done that and more latterly uh, in regard to our sense of helplessness regarding God's provision for our building here. At other times we've maybe had a group of people that have suggested that out of desperation in, the, in response to a serious health individual of a particular uh, member of the church. And again, that is a good uh, thing to do as well. But never has that been suggested by me or anybody else in response corporately to our own failing and sinfulness as a whole church. Never. That's not to say that we're wrong in not doing that. I'm just wanting to flag up the rarity because we're all all right, aren't we, in the way that we're doing and living as a church. Not an ounce of sin amongst us. You would have been at that Bible College Chapel years ago that I was at. A sense of reality like never before had got to that big time. Of course, we sometimes have our monthly prayer meeting where we can seek God about those things that are important 
Saturday morning. That's not convenient for everybody. We recognise that. We all live busy lives. So we created in response to what members suggested the top eight slots of day and time that would suit the majority. So over a two month period, as a church of 150 members, we could seek our God afresh. We did it eight times in two months. The average number of members that came to each of those meetings was less than 5%. When we have people join this church as seeking to be a part of us, I'm very honest about we do some things very well. We do some things not so well. A couple of times the question has been asked, are you a praying church? My answer is no. Now don't judge me. The answer is no. We have prayer here. We have a little bit of prayer there, a little bit of prayer there. We are not a praying church in the way that maybe we ought to be before a holy God if we really get to grips with what God is wanting for us. Too busy, aren't we? We've got too many events to run. We need too many volunteers for the cafe. We've got this, we've got that. There was a sense of God's spirit striking something at the very core of Joshua and the leaders and afresh they needed to put right something that wasn't right. And the way we do that is to get on our knees. I'm not very good at praying, by the way, so in case you think I'm judging you, I'm probably worse than any of you. I find it really hard. I look to you to help me so that corporately together we seem to put this right as well as other areas. I wonder about how we are feeling and whether or not there's any of us here who are feeling a bit like Joshua and things going wrong. The encouragement here is that there is a God who cares, who's there for us, even when things go completely pear-shaped and badly wrong. Turn to him in faith that he's there, that he loves you, that he will do something. may not always be immediately, it may well not always be in the way that you are looking for, but we are called as his people to trust him. If he's there until evening, which Joshua was, maybe we can assume that God did not answer Joshua's prayer straight away, because he was there until evening. Why don't you felt like Joshua? Why is this happening? Why isn't this happening? It's all gone wrong. I'm tempted to chuck in the towel. How often is it that we tend to meet God when we are at our lowest? There's an interesting irony there, isn't there? I've often wondered why. Well, it's at those times that we most likely are needing Him and recognising our complete dependence upon Him as opposed to our independence because I'm okay, thank you very much, which is largely speaking how we kind of feel as churches, I think. Certainly over here in the two-thirds west. And we're fine on our own. And Joshua is flat on his face. It's then that God speaks. It's then that God speaks. And you can see what he says in chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. God is blunt about what needs to be rooted out, but he's also very gracious. Defeat is directly linked to disobedience. There is hope if sin will be dealt with. That's the message that comes through in terms of what God is flagging up. And this is the gospel. There is hope if wrongdoing is dealt with. 
It's very simple, really. But it doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't wrong be punished? Well, yes, but this is how much God loves you and God loves me. That's where the whole Jesus thing kicks in, which Paul, when we come around the Lord's table, is going to explain to us as we have that opportunity over communion. Our sin has indeed been dealt with. That's why Jesus gave of himself on that cross. Confess this, our wrongdoing, and believe that Jesus is there. That's the opportunity for us for forgiveness and a fresh start. Then there is hope. Hope for you, hope for me. Whatever we've done, whether we're the likes of Achan or our sin is maybe worse, who knows? Deal with what you know to be wrong. That's the other thing that screams loud and clear uh, from this passage here. Israel as a nation were going to suffer, not because of lack of people fighting the battle or their own being complacent ultimately, although those were factors, but because of undealt with sin. Achan was guilty for specifically going against God's instruction. Yet he did nothing at any point to put right his wrong. When God puts his finger on something that is wrong in your life and mine, it's not because he delights in making us feel awful. That conviction that comes from God's Holy Spirit is so that we are able to then nip that in the bud, deal with it, confess it, recognise that then God deals with it, chucks it into the deepest depths to be remembered no more so that we can be set free. That's good news. Aiken here did absolutely nothing at all in response to this wrongdoing. Even when there was an opportunity to do so, or even when he may well have sensed that he could have been in trouble. When it was being scaled down from the nation, to then a particular tribe, to then a particular family. All those opportunities, as things were getting closer, the point must be of being a little bit uncomfortable. You would have known about the God of forgiveness. No, not at all. Just left standing there doing nothing. A bit like Tom, who played his part so well. And then it's pretty obvious who the culprit was. Undealt with sin. Of course, there comes a time when we can leave it too late. And I'm not being true to the gospel unless I let you know that. Because your life is going to end, and so is mine. Or Jesus is going to come back. And either of those two occasions, if we are undealt with sin, it is then too late after either of those two scenarios for us to seek to put things right. I was at a funeral not that long ago, and uh, I found it quite interesting, the prayers that were going on for the person who had died, about where they now would hopefully be. I don't want to be insensitive, but it's too late. No point in praying for a dead person, they're dead. Scripture said they're destined to die once, and then after that, judgment. Exactly the same if Jesus were to return. Now, it's too late. Whilst we have opportunity, this is the time. This is a time of grace. This is the day of hope for each of us to have that opportunity of putting things that are not right, right. There's a whole host of different sins in the New Testament that are listed, and we could have read all sorts of passages. The list of sins that uh, 
the New Testament uh, condemns uh, deal, it seems to me, with our undealt with issues more than our occasional mistakes or our dealt with sins. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read uh, verses 19 to 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. He lists, Paul lists, by the way, 15. I know we like to home in on two because the others are less important, even though that's not what the Bible teaches. But let's just take the whole 15 and realise all of this stuff is God's word to his people. This is being said to the church, not to people out there. So there's no point in us being self-righteous. This is being said to a church. Paul says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who live like this. It's a lifestyle issue. It is not God saying that if you make a mistake in that area, you're out. Because we're all going to make mistakes in those areas or in others. And if those 15 you feel you're okay on, that's only because you sin in a different way. So none of us can be smug about that. I would dare to suggest that had we had longer, I would have unpacked each of those 15 words. Because for many of us, we can gloss over those 15 words and think we're okay. And yet maybe do a word study on each of those 15 words and you wouldn't feel as okay as you're feeling right now. There's your challenge this week for your homework. <laughs> Have a check out of that word study and then see how comfortable we feel before God. But what Paul is saying to the church, it's those who live like this. So how are you living in terms of envy? In terms of discord? In terms of your anger? in terms of the unite, disunited spirit, and we could go on, and that's without even breaking any of those things down. I wonder what you might be struggling with this morning, this week, this year. How aware are we of what is or what isn't wrongdoing in God's eyes? Are we perfect? Or are we wrestling like crazy with that which is lurking just beneath the surface. I love the way that Paul uh, wrestles himself and is honest himself about the stuff that's good I want to do, but I end up doing the bad, and the bad I don't want to do, that's the stuff that I end up doing. He's frustrated in Romans chapter 7. Thankfully, he says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knows where the solution is. He knows the answer. And it's not in himself and in his church going or in his being religious at all. It's only as a result of the death of Jesus Christ. As punishment for his own sin. Jeremiah said the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I do, because I know mine. What about you? 
be honest about that, I think, instead of pretending. Because when it comes to being face to face with our Maker, when it comes to being at the foot of the cross, we are all in the same boat. Every single one of us. All have sinned. Just as I close before Paul is going to come and lead us in a time around the communion table, here in my view are the most common mistakes that I see over and over again in regards to our sin and God's forgiveness. And I'm going to list six things. I want you to hear me. Uh, I hope I communicate this clearly enough. Here's one of the, the first uh, areas. For some of us, we have an inbuilt misunderstanding of big sin, little sin. And what I mean by that is we can become aware of how others are living their life or what others have done. Oh dear, they call themselves a Christian. Oh, if only they would like me. We don't say that. But in essence, that's what we think. And then we can all too easily carry on with our own little sins as if that's okay. Is it before God is completely 100% holy? Secondly, there are some who can assume we are okay. In other words, that it's always other people who need to be putting things right. Come across that quite often. Thirdly, maybe for some of us we've got so used to living in a particular way or acting in a particular way that we become hardened and unable to now be able to discern uh, what is wrong inside. Repetition means sin quickly doesn't feel like sin anymore. I've got used to it. It's a hobby. I'm not aware there's anything wrong with this. I was able to justify it 15 years ago, so I've continued with that. And until God's Spirit comes and convicts you, you'll continue for that to be the case. Come across that from time to time. We'd be very good at justifying our sin, can't we, whilst pointing the finger at others? Very good. Some of us are so good we can even quote a Bible verse. Fourthly, maybe for some, we assume we are not okay and never can be because we don't fully believe the gospel of grace. We are so mortified with what we have done wrong or we've been made to feel so bad by what we did at a particular moment in our Christian life, that even though we brought that matter to God and confessed it, and we believe that for the moment, but we don't carry the ownership of what it means to be free in Christ for more than a matter of minutes or days, and then we go back and live under this self-perpetuating self-condemnation. Come across that a lot with Christians. Or fifthly, maybe for some of us we don't think it matters because we believe that if there is a God, he's going to forgive everyone in the end because he is loving. I don't see a single verse in my Bible that points to that. God is loving, yes. God is forgiving, yes. Nowhere does it say that everybody's going to go to heaven in the end and everybody's going to be forgiven. No, it does not say that. It teaches that only those who confess their sin and believe what God has done for them in Jesus are able to then receive God's forgiveness and enter into glory with him. And lastly, maybe we are in the category who does believe there is a God. We know he forgives anyone who comes to him. 
accept blame. Because we have such a low view of ourselves, we cannot believe that God would possibly love us. Huge self-esteem issues. Battering, battering, battering. I think it's great that God can forgive anybody for doing anything. But I'm not there. Did a lot of people like that as well over the years. I wonder if anything of those six areas strikes a chord with you. If it does, you're in the best place possible because Paul is going to point us directly to Jesus and what he did for us, that we can be reminded afresh of God's forgiveness and come back to him afresh to receive everything he wants for us. That fresh start. Whoever we are, whatever we have done. Let's go. Paul, would you like to come forward as I pray? And let's just pray together. Father God, as we read of your word back in Joshua 7, it kind of like looks so different and sounds so um, irrelevant to ourselves with all the strange names and the the customs of the day, the dust on the heads and the falling to the, the, the floor, the tearing closely. What has that got to do with us? But when we, when we see what your word says to a people that disobeyed you, and we, then we, we see all too clearly what you are saying to ourselves. We hear the warning. But we thank you that alongside the warning comes an encouragement for each and every one of us to come. To come and taste and see that you are indeed good, as I dare say. And for each and every one of us who comes, the sincerity of heart confesses their wrongdoing, our wrongdoing, my wrongdoing. So we have the opportunity, being separate, released that we might indeed have clean hands, clean heart and flesh. Not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has already done. God, would you bring us to that place? Let's just stay and put that smile on our face, which is reflective of your pleasure over us because of your incredible love for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.